Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Film Spotting SVUs presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Miss any of this year's award-winning movies? Movies on Demand has got you covered. Now playing on demand is Room, starring Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay, as a kidnapped mother and son who make a daring escape after years of captivity. This award-winning film takes a riveting look at the power of imagination and the unstoppable force of a mother's love. Also playing on demand is award winner The Danish Girl, starring Eddie Redmayne and Alicia Vikander, as a remarkable couple who embark on a groundbreaking journey. The ceremony may be over, but the Oscars party continues on Movies on Demand on Cable. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on Cable. The art house is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And from Los Angeles, just for the weekend, I'm Allison Wilmore. Uh, please excuse our sound. This time on the show, we review Love, the new Netflix series from Judd Apatow, which should have been called A Freak and a Geek Grow Up and Fall in Love. Oh, I get it, because Judd Apatow produced Freaks and Geeks. Uh, what's Freaks and Geeks? Uh, never mind. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all featuring a common theme and in honor of love. Allison and I were going to read romantic poetry for 80 minutes. The greatest hits of... Keats and Shelley and Byron, you know, set a uh, an amorous mood for our listeners. But, well, if you've seen Love, then you know it's not super romantic. And so that's where we're going to go instead. We decided let's, let's uh, lean into this and do some unromantic or perhaps even anti-romantic romantic comedies. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand. And Allison, you have our picks this time. What's up first? 
Well, first up is a film that I like a lot that fell in this awkward spot between being an indie and being a bigger film. It's Miss You Already, which is from uh, from director Catherine Hardwick, who did 13 and Twilight, and has actually been very active in speaking out on behalf of hiring practices for women in Hollywood lately. It's very cool. But uh, Miss You Already, which will be available by the time this podcast is live on demand, is uh, kind of a love story of best friends, a platonic love story between Tony Collette, whose character Millie has grown up with Jess, played by Drew Barrymore. They've done everything together, including kind of like their first big romantic experiences with guys as like when they're out like at shows. Uh, and, and eventually they become grown ups. They settle down. They have families or try to. And then Millie uh, learns that she has cancer. And, you know, there are, I feel like the movies that are about best friendship tend to be about younger characters because best friendship is something we tend to associate with being younger. You know, saying someone is your best friend tends to be something you hear from kids in school. Uh, but this is a movie that is genuinely about best friendship as adu- as like in these two adults. Uh, these women are as important to each other in their lives as their romantic partners are. And I, I feel like there's something rare about that that the movie does real justice to. You know, there are times where in dealing with cancer, Millie does a lot of destructive things that tend to hurt her relationship with her husband. Uh, and, and Jess kind of doesn't put up with it, but also supports her, uh, you know, in a different way. And I I think that uh, as a portrait of someone grappling with increasingly difficult, uh, an increasingly difficult illness, uh, it's also just like a four hanky weepy. It is like beaches, except uh, a little less shameless. Hi. Hey. What are you up to at lunchtime? Is everything okay? You found out a week ago? Well, how could the tumor have gotten so big? Because it's aggressive, like you. Oh, Jesus. There's a place somewhere that's between dream and awake. The lovely nurse puts chemotherapy into the IV drip. The medicine is like an army of soldiers. And they all march into Mummy's body. You kind of look like a superhero. So uh, it's worth checking out. It's Miss You Already. It's available now on demand. Also new on demand, and I'm really looking forward to seeing this one. I missed it when it was in theaters last year, is the documentary We Come As Friends. This is from documentarian Hubert Sopé, who uh, you may remember did the movie Darwin's Nightmare in 2004, an incredibly dark film about an incredibly dark documentary about Africa and all of the various economies that were kind of destroying this lake. Um, And here is the description from the BBC of We Come As Friends, which is also about Africa and about the various forces that are kind of at work in the Sudan. Uh, We Come As Friends is a modern odyssey, a dizzying science fiction-like journey into the heart of Africa. At the moment when the Sudan, the continent's biggest country, is being divided into two nations, an old civilizing pathology reemerges, that of colonialism, the clash of empires, and new episodes of bloody and holy wars over land and resources. 
The director of Darwin's Nightmare takes us on this journey in his tiny, self-made, tin and canvas flying machine. He leads us into the most improbable locations and into people's thoughts and dreams in both stunning and heartbreaking ways. Chinese oil workers, UN peacekeepers, Sudanese warlords, and American evangelists. Ironically, we have common ground in this documentary, a complex, profound, and humorous cinematic endeavor, a tale of very old and rather sinister verses. Uh, no one attempts to make make films about Africa like Sope. Uh, so I, I really want to see this and I'm looking forward to it. And if you are interested in checking it out, it is now available on demand. And finally, also now available, a movie that I know nothing about other than the logline, which I have become obsessed with. <laughs> it is a movie called Backtrack. Here is that description. Psychologist Peter Bowers, played by Adrian Brody, Life is thrown into turmoil when he discovers that the patients he has been seeing are ghosts. What? Yes. It goes on. Risking his own sanity, Peter delves into his past to uncover a terrifying secret which only he can put right. Ghost patients. Yes. Also stars Sam Neill, preferably as a ghost. Uh, Yes. I don't know anything about this movie, but I mean, how good is that? Ghost therapist. Ghost therapist. Adrian Brody colon ghost therapist. <laughs> I'm into it. I'm very know, into right? it. It could be. It would be a really good TV show, actually. Yes. Ghost therapist. He could solve crimes. Anyway, that is Backtrack, and it is also now available on demand. So that'll be two thirty-five. Dude, I don't have my wallet. Can I pay you back later? This isn't a charity. I'm good for it. I'll come right back. You know what? I got this. Okay. And a pack of cigarettes? A pack of smokes. Parliaments. Hey, I have money. I can pay you back. It's totally cool. It's on me. Don't be a f***ing hero. I'm Mickey. I'm Gus. Follow me. You know that expression, love wins? Well, it was never more true than in this week's Listener's Choice poll where you guys picked the new Netflix comedy series Love over the recent biopic Life and the horror anthology Southbound. Love was created by Judd Apatow, Paul Rust, and Leslie Arfin. Arfin and Rust are actually husband and wife, and Rust stars in the show as Gus, who works in Los Angeles as a, frankly, very terrible tutor to the spoiled stars of a CW-style supernatural soap opera called Wichita. Um, By sheer chance, he meets Mickey, played by Jillian Jacobs, at a gas station. And Mickey works at a satellite radio station and has addiction issues. She drinks heavily, she smokes, she glances at an app on her phone that uh, counts her days of sobriety, and it seems to think she hasn't touched alcohol in a year and a half, but we know that that isn't true. When they meet, both Gus and Mickey have just gotten out of long-term relationships, and their chance encounter turns into a potential relationship one that develops very slowly over the course of the show's 10 half-hour-ish episodes. Some are a little bit longer than 30 minutes. Allison, I am going to lay my cards on the table here. Okay. Because of time constraints, I almost watched only seven of Love's 10 episodes. But then in the last couple hours, I was able to find a little extra time, and I did go and, and finish the series. So my question to you is this. Do you think I spent that time well... Or should I, and by extension our listeners, have bailed on the show early? Ooh, that's an interesting question, especially since those last two episodes are pretty – they ramp up yes. towards 
essentially alienating you from both of the main characters. That is, yes, that is true. I, I am kind of confounded by this series. I'm not really sure how I feel about it. Yeah. I think that, uh, like, most, I, I kind of, I got to eight episodes and I took a break. So it took me actually a little while to see those last two as well. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I said to someone, and then I eventually said on Twitter, uh, I don't, I'm spending this whole show rooting for this main relationship to not work out, like praying it doesn't work out, right. hoping it does not work out. And I was like, am I supposed to feel that way? And some people were like, yes, actually, I think so. And I think that is the the big question mark I have at this series is that it is kind of described as a, it's called love. It is described as a kind of alt romantic comedy. I've heard people just like compare it to you're the worst on FX, which is a show that uh, is actually not that similar to this. Uh, I, and I, I, I don't feel like it really works as a romantic comedy in the way that you want these two people to, these two crazy kids to work it out. That said, I feel like a lot of the other parts of it, I like a lot. Mm-hmm. But how about you, Matt? What did you think of this as a romance and then as a show that happens to be about two characters who may or may not make a go of it? Yeah. Did you use the word confounding? I'm, yes. I, I, th- that's a, I think that's the perfect word to describe this show. I mean, there's some things, like you said, there. I think there are things about it to really like. And in those last couple episodes, which I again I almost didn't watch, um, partly because of time, and also partly because I wasn't exactly a hundred percent hooked. Um, those last couple episodes, they really do kind of, I agree, sort of put you in this position where you're ambivalent a lot of the show about these characters, but by that those last couple episodes really paints them both in, in pretty unflattering uh, dimensions at that point. And particularly their relationship to one another, where, um, you know, I guess this is technically a spoiler if you haven't watched the entire show, but I don't really feel it's a huge spoiler. I mean, the movie, uh, the show rather, ends with this sort of, you know, what what it would, would be considered in, in in most romantic comedies, sort of the triumphant final kiss. Um, but in this case, it almost feels like... Um, like an unhappy ending in a way, or almost ominous, right? That that this this relationship has been sort of consummated, but at what cost? Or we almost wonder if when we see these characters again, if there's a second season, like, are they going to be in a better place because they're together or in a worse place? Uh, I honestly, I think it might be more the latter. And I don't know. I, I, I mean, to a certain extent... That part of it I sort of admire, that it, it, it uses the trappings of the traditional – I mean, you called it an alt-romantic comedy, but it feels a lot like a Judd Apatow movie to me. Um, so the fact that it, it, it has that sort of style and structure in a lot of ways but is is using those things to maybe look at certain things like addiction and uh, – I sort of admire that about that. But I have to admit I also was not – wildly entertained by the show. I mean, if we weren't doing this uh, for the podcast, I almost certainly would not have gotten to the end. I probably would have bailed after three or four episodes. And it's a, it's a it, mostly for the issue that we've talked about before when it comes to these Netflix shows, which is that they, they just so sluggishly paced that, I mean, 
this to me is is as good an argument against serialization in <laughs> television as I've seen because I really did not feel like and each individual episode was sort of a a, 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 an individual unit of entertainment that you kind of have to watch all 10 episodes to get something out of this. And after three or four, I mean, we could talk about specific episodes and I might like this one or that one, but I mean, it's really one large story. And I thought it was kind of funny that Judd Apatow sort of found his way to Netflix. It's like the perfect place for him because this is a guy who can't make a, a, a romantic comedy that's under two and a half hours long, it seems like. And here he basically got the chance to make a five-hour romantic comedy. I mean, it is almost the perfect place for our most bloated comedy director. It's like the only the only place where he could wind up. And those sort of like tendencies to go long and really dig into these tiny little details of life some of them I found, frankly, really maddening, and I was like, ah, I was just waiting, waiting for the, the, them to end. I have to, I have to be brutally honest and say that, yeah, there were there were parts of this that were a rough go for me. So I'm I'm pretty mixed. I feel like it's actually kind of the worst place for Judd Apatow Netflix, you know, I, I, because it's a place that basically says run with all of your most auteurist impulses yeah. and let them go free. And Apatow is someone who loves improv and loves kind of letting scenes run out. And certainly in this, sometimes he finds good stuff in those scenes, yep. but there are a whole bunch of sequences in this that start off really well and then feel like they should have been cut shorter Right. And they just go on for yeah. like with no benefit towards letting the time run out. I feel like having watched the whole show now, and I, I you know, I don't know Paul Rust's work at all. Leslie Arfin was a writer on Girls who got fired actually for oh. saying racially controversial things on Twitter. Wow. Um, and you know, so and and her sensibility, and I, I feel like the girls' sensibility, I can understand a bit. But there is a there is a certain element to this show where I f- it feels almost like whatever this other sensibility is, is at war with Judd Apatow's kind of insistence on monogamous domesticity. Hmm. You know, Judd Apatow is like uh, R-rated comedy's great defender of of like kind of marriage and settling down and having right like yeah. having a home together and having a family. Yes. Even if sometimes that home and family looks like a kind of R-rated comedy version of a purgatory in which two people who don't like each other very much are trapped. Right. You know, Apatow believes very strongly in like this type of relationship as like good for you, especially good for a guy, right? Right. It is good for a guy. It makes you grow up. Yes. And I feel like that kind of arrow at two people ending up together, you know, comes from him. Whereas, in a lot of ways, the two characters are more interesting when they're not together. Like, they have some nice back and forth, especially the first kind of date they go out on. Yeah, that's, that's that their best. Nice. Yes. But, I, I, you know, I think a lot of times when they're off in their separate weird worlds, the parts of the show that I like the best are the kind of universes in which they each exist. I like, agree. you know, the, the set, the show called... Uh, Wichita. Yes. It's about witches in which a period drama yes. that uh, Gus works on. Yes. All of the dynamics of that are great. Yes. Uh, the, the radio show that Mickey works in is very interesting. I love her roommate who's played this by this Australian comedian. Yes. And she is, she fits no easy kind of stereotype. I don't know how to describe her other than she's kind of chipper. 
I love Gus's friends who all come over to write plot songs for movies. Mm-hmm. Like Carlito's way, sure. you know all of these. Uh, I, the apartment complex that he lives in, which is filled with pre-furnished apartments that are right. all identical. Right. You know all of these odd details are very appealing. Yeah, I just find a lot of the interactions that happen between Gus and Mickey that increasingly become like they seem to take a step forward, and then she does something to sabotage it. And then has a regret and tries to fix things. Like that's a cycle that happens over and over again. Mm. I, I just, I just started to feel so both repetitive to me and, and difficult to watch because you really start to feel like I don't, you shouldn't get back together, (laughs) run away, run away from each other. Well, they're definitely playing with making you uncomfortable in some of those scenes. Oh yeah. Lots of the scenes with them together and other scenes, especially like, Mickey gets a slightly more of this, but there are bunches of scenes that are just, they play off of like the comedy of excruciating awkwardness. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think we're, we're, we're pretty much on the same page here. I mean, to me, getting back to what I was saying about how, you know, like I really, I would really like to have like an episode of television or Netflix or whatever we want to call it, like have itself, it can be part of a larger story, but like, it really needs to feel like a unit of entertainment. You know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like I got a lot out of a lot of the episodes as individuals. The one that I liked best as an episode is one that I think does the most with what you're talking about with their separate worlds, which was episode three, which I thought was really probably the best episode of the 10. That's the one where they're basically apart the whole day. This is like after they've met, had that like sort of very um, sort of like casual but successful meeting and first date sort of thing. And then they separate and go about their lives. And like the whole episode is uh, Gus waiting for Mickey to answer his text of like, what's up, you know, Uh, sup, I think is what he actually writes. But, and we're waiting the whole episode for a response. And basically the answer is the episode. This is what's going on in both of their lives. And I agree, both of their lives have these really interesting, rich sort of supporting casts. And then the punchline is at the end of the episode, she writes back, after all this stuff has happened, after they both had ethical crises at work, whether she should sleep with her boss, whether he should help this like monstrous child actor to cheat on a test, and they both sort of had these discoveries about the person they thought in their life was kind of the bad guy, quote-unquote, that we see these other sides, like I liked all of that stuff, and then the punchline after all this is that she writes back, nothing, what's up with you? Like that there's like this complete lack of communication there, which is maybe uh, foreshadowing the fact that they're maybe not well-suited to one another. Um, or just maybe talking about the general sort of lack of communication in modern relationships. And I felt like that episode was sort of succinct and, and, and really well done. But a lot of the other episodes, like you were saying before, the improv, um, a lot of sort of wandering improv. And yeah, that the, the relationship does kind of repeat and repeat and get increasingly uncomfortable and awkward and again i think a lot of it is by design and they're sort of trying to push almost like a curb your enthusiasm sort of or maybe the office is an even better comparison that sort of humor but i'm i'm with you when i say like at a certain point it's like there's got to be a little it it just it, it does it for so long that 
you know, maybe if it was a six episode series, maybe if it was a, a 90 minute movie, I don't know. It just, you know, I agree that sometimes those little details are the best parts, but there's, I don't know, there's maybe too many little details. I should mention while we're talking about the, sh- the episodes uh, that this show has a bunch of indie directors, including Maggie Carey, who directed one of the episodes who did the to-do list and Mumblecore's own Joe Swanberg, who did one of the other episodes, Michael Showalter as well directed the eighth episode. So, you know, that very kind of shaggy indie sensibility is really built into the talent here. Uh, but I don't know. I, in terms of the standalone episodes, I think the one you're talking about is good. I, I think, I think I like the show a little bit more than you, but I do think that there are some episodes that work as units, like the fifth episode the, where, where Mickey decides that she likes Gus uh, and so immediately tries to blow this up by setting him up on a date with her roommate uh, Birdie, the Australian girl. Uh, it goes terribly because they have no particular chemistry and because they're uh, they're both too nice in a way. Yeah. Uh, Gus is kind of aggressively nice. And uh, it, it, I love the way, actually, in which they both start to try and sabotage the date and also in which they both kind of know what's going on and slowly start to say it out loud. I, I enjoyed that. I also enjoyed the weird Andy Dick episode. Oh, uh, see, that was my least favorite episode by far. Oh, I actually really liked her interactions with him. Uh, but so here is the, the before we we close up on this, the thing I do want to talk about is that, you know, Gus is 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 almost like there, this show kind of plays off of a, the familiar comedy idea of the the beautiful girl who ends up with a nerdy guy. Right. Uh, and it definitely is very self-conscious about that and really pushes off a lot of those stereotypes as well. But I do think. But Gus, for the most part, despite some really irritating qualities, mm-hmm. is portrayed as like a genuinely nice guy mm-hmm. who is sometimes nice, almost like to make a show of it in a way that gets in his own way. Absolutely. But Mickey is a character I fully believe. I totally believe it. Like she's written in a way that I she's exactly like some one or two people I've met before. But I also hate her. <laughs> and I feel like that's fine. In fact, I would almost watch a show about her mm-hmm. in which it's okay. She doesn't need to be likable. Uh, and I really like uh, Gillian Jacobs in this role. She fully commits. She doesn't try and soften the character. Mm-hmm. But I feel like in the context in which she is placed in parallel with Gus and just keeps treating him badly again and again, I just have so much trouble kind of not wanting her to go away. You know, if it weren't a show about the two of them and if it didn't put them evenly, I don't think this would feel so bad. But I do think he ends up being more sympathetic just because he's not as aggressively awful as she is. And because of that, I just, you know, I just there are lots of times where I just wanted him to run away from her. Yeah, I, yeah, that's it's it's interesting. These are all things I thought about for sure, and I'm sure that the, the the show is definitely playing with is the niceness and sometimes the overbearing niceness of Gus and and the way she sometimes is uh, almost aggressively mean. And it's interesting because I almost from the beginning found her a much more interesting character to watch and spend time with than him because he's, you know, like you're saying, he's sort of like this, 
Oh, you know, likable, bland, nebbishy, standard comedy guy. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. And she has a lot more, I don't know, she's just a little more unique in this world um, uh, and and felt a little fresher to me. Um, And you're right, especially, but then again, at the end, towards the, like, if I hadn't watched those last couple episodes, I feel like I would be completely in agreement with you. But I feel like some of the stuff he does at the end, while in his mind would be entirely justifiable. He does some pretty horrible, questionable yeah. things in those last agreed. couple of episodes. Agreed, agreed. But also I wanted more of that from the beginning. Then. Yeah. You know, like I think that if he had done more of that, then, then it would have had more of a sense of balance for me. Right. Because well, it wouldn't have been set up so much. Like he's so like oppressively nice that right. his girlfriend breaks up with him. Right. You're not wrong. I think the issue is that again, it's that they're doing this super, elongated serialized thing where they're trying to like tease these things out and slowly reveal sides of their characters where it's not it's not like a a a more old-fashioned sitcom where in every episode you would have a you know like you would see multiple sides of these people like that's just not what it is so i don't know like again i find myself with a lot of netflix shows liking sort of the boldness of it the, the the willingness to experiment um, liking the people who are in it, liking a lot of the individual moments, and walking away feeling like it was way too long and could have used a lot of editing. So are you going to watch the second season? It, when it was ordered, it was ordered in two seasons, so it's okay. already greenlit for a 12-episode second season. 12 episodes, not uh-huh. just 10. Uh-huh. Oh, boy. I, honestly, I don't know. I, I The honest answer is I don't know. Would I watch it? Yes. Am I dying to watch it am i on uh, in suspense waiting for the next round of episodes no i will watch it but i still i this is such a show that i feel conflicted on i felt conflicted as i watched it so i i mean i guess there's something interesting about that but it it is based on a lot of like cringe comedy that i i, I like practically watch with my hands over my eyes <laughs> um, it's not a genre that I enjoy. Mm. So that, uh, you know, that's something I, in some ways it's like watching a horror movie where, you know, there's going to be like a jump scare all the time. <laughs> it's like that, but with comedy. Yeah. And so it does require, like, I need to kind of, you know, gird myself for those, but I, I think I'm going to stick with it despite all of the confounding issues that we've talked about. So that bemused review <laughs> from the two of us uh that's love it is now streaming season one is now streaming on netflix and you can look for season two in 2017 Every time we hear the music And we're in this love together We got the kind that lasts forever We're in this love together And like berries on the line It gets sweeter 
So we're finally back to doing a cue shots after a bit of a break. We are taking a look at unromantic romantic comedies, anti-romantic comedies, unromantic comedies, comedies in which you either uh, don't root for the main characters to get together or, or comedies in which the main characters might not get together, in which the lead may not get the girl or the guy uh, that play with the formula that we all know and love so well. Uh, is this a subgenre you enjoy, Matt? Um, I don't know. It's not a it's not a genre that I don't that I don't un, uh, not enjoy. I mean, I, I I guess I'm a fan of any sort of movie that's willing to fiddle with formula. I like when a movie um, defies our expectations a little bit or plays with them. You know that that comes in a very knowing package. It's something that looks recognizable. Um, but then it zigs when we expect it to zag. It doesn't just give us the formula. Formula can be good too. It can be enjoyable. It can be pleasant. But uh, I like I like it when uh, when when any genre, any any film of any genre says, "Well, this is what the typical movie does. We're going to do something different." Yeah, I you know especially when there's such a kind of set basic arc that that is how a romantic comedy tends to work a classic romantic comedy i do like the idea of playing with that formula and playing with our expectations of, of how those characters uh have a relationship but matt what's your first pick here what have you got well my first pick is is really the first movie that came to mind when you brought up this idea because it was sold as you know the fun romantic comedy with these two huge movie stars and that would be Julia Roberts and Brad Pitt and the movie here is The Mexican which is available for rent um but when you see the movie actually the two movie stars who are we are supposedly coming to see be in love or fall in love they actually spend most of the movie apart which is really where like to me like the love connection came in <laughs> the love connection came from here um because you know like that show where so much of the of the show is about the characters being apart that's kind of how the mexican is uh Brad Pitt plays this low-level crook he is sent to retrieve this famous antique gun that's known as the mexican and Julie Roberts plays his girlfriend. She doesn't want him to go. And so when he says he's going anyway, she basically breaks up with him, throws him out of their house. And so then you have these two parallel storylines while Pitt's off in Mexico trying to find the Mexican, the gun. Um, Roberts gets kidnapped by this hitman who's played by James Gandolfini. And then eventually towards the end of the movie, the two plot lines like reconnect. And I can actually remember seeing this movie back in, I guess, 2001 when it came out. It was one of my earlier dates with my wife, and we went to see it when we were still in college. And I remember at the time that, frankly, I hated this movie. I really didn't like it. (laughs) And then I didn't see it again until several years ago when I was working at The Dissolve. I I was writing this piece about Julia Roberts's entire career. We did these articles there that, that where you would take a director or a actor or whatever, and you would watch everything they'd ever done and then like cover their whole career. And so I rewatched it. And this time around, I really loved it. I had a complete 180 on this movie. And I think maybe that the first time, maybe my expectations were really skewed by the marketing, which did sell this movie as a very traditional romantic comedy where the actual film is kind of weird and sad in ways that you might not necessarily expect. 
And I think it speaks to the perils of making an unconventional romantic comedy. Like we, when we go see these movies, a lot of times we want to see people in love, falling in love, especially when they're Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts, these beautiful people. Like that's one of the most fundamental pleasures of movie going. And uh, the romantic comedy can often – it's not that forgiving in terms of bre- bending or breaking the rules. Like I, something that we were talking about, about love, like that you know that it's trying to interrogate these things and you know maybe it's being successful and it just didn't work for me maybe in 10 years I'll go back and find love to be a masterpiece I don't know but I feel like if you go in knowing that the Mexican is going to be a little stranger than the typical I think you will enjoy it it's certainly a movie that's really grown on me I can't think of too many movies that have grown on me this much uh that is the Mexican you can rent it right now yeah, I haven't seen that movie since it was in the theaters. And I remember being, I don't know, a little uncertain about how, like, what it was trying to do. You know, it was, I, I, I was, I don't know, what year was that 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 came 2001. out? 2001. 2001. Yeah, I, I had no idea what to do with it. I should take another look at it. You I should. See, you've kind of sold me on giving nice. it a second try. So for my first pick, I went with a movie that is is not a movie that ends that ends with a happy romantic ending but it does come from one of the the major figures of uh the like the last era of romantic comedy that would be Nora Ephron writer director of Sleepless in Seattle and you've got Mail she wrote when Harry met Sally and this was her i think second film screenplay 1986 and it is based on her is the movie is called heartburn it's now streaming on tubi tv and it is based on efron's own marriage her second marriage uh, to carl bernstein who had an affair with a mutual friend of theirs and uh, she got her revenge by writing this thinly disguised novel about it that is not terribly generous to either him or the woman he has the affair with but the movie stars Meryl Streep as Rachel Samstadt, a magazine writer, and Jack Nicholson as Mark Foreman, a political columnist. And they meet at a wedding, and she insists she never wants to get married again. And immediately afterwards, they're getting married. And what follows is the story of a marriage uh, kind of dissolving over over the course of this couple moving to D.C. and then trying to restore this house that they're constantly renovating. It's like never finished. And then uh, having one child and then a second child. And this is by no means a perfect movie. In fact, what one of the things that makes it so fascinating is the ways in which it's so raw, it feels like it has no distance on it at all. Mark Foreman, the character of Mark Foreman, played by Jack Nicholson, is a is this kind of amalgam of different, he's like distant sometimes, he's totally charming other times, he's a playboy, he's uh, maybe he's a little sociopathic, but maybe he really loves her. He never comes together as a person. He's more of a reflection of like all of these different things that she, uh, that Efron clearly kind of, thought about her partner over over the, her relationship and then puts into this fictionalized character but because it's Meryl Streep in particular as 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 Rachel she basically fills out the rest of the marriage herself 
you understand that this is a character who is not seeing things clearly, that she is deliriously in love. Well, first she's very uncertain, and then she's deliriously in love. And then she has this moment of awakening where she starts to realize that something's going on in her marriage that she has not paid attention to. Uh, And it's certainly dated. It's an extremely 80s movie. All of the fashion choices are fabulously 80s. The music is by Carly Simon. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it's got a it's got a great cast, including Stockard Channing, and I think Kevin Spacey in his first role as a as a mugger on the subway. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yes, uh, but you know the kind of the total lack of filter in this from someone who would go on to really define like this era of romantic comedy is fascinating. You know, like she's just getting out all like she's just getting out this rage and sense of betrayal and one of the things that's so that makes it so provocative is that it is really about a woman who feels like she's been duped into this romantic idealism you know she's been told that you you fall in love and you kind of get brought off somewhere and uh you know someone says they'll be with you forever and uh she doesn't ever see him clearly her husband until things start to go wrong so to see that coming from someone who then goes on to write some like very swoony, delightful romantic comedies is, is really interesting. And for all of this movie's imperfections, I think that lifting it, you know, looking at it as part of the Nora Ephron canon, it's directed by Mike Mill or Mike Nichols. I don't know if I mentioned that, but uh, it's, it's uh, kind of uh, a really neat part of her filmography, especially given her genre of choice. So that is Heartburn, and you can stream it for free on Tubi TV. Yeah, that's a movie I've I've definitely heard of, and I've kind of always wanted to watch just for all the reasons you've outlined. That's one I have to I have to check out. Tubi TV, it's a good website. That's uh they've got some interesting stuff there, including my next pick. Uh, it recently popped up there. Um, I did talk about this movie all the way back on. Allison pointed this out. Film spotting SVU episode number two. That is literally four years ago now. Um, And so given the fact that it was four years ago and this film, Art School Confidential, was just added to Tubi TV, um, the way I see it, every four years when something gets added to a new website, I'm allowed to talk about it again. So (laughs) here we are. Um, This is a movie that I really like more than anybody else, probably. Maybe more than the people that made it. I don't know why. It's a... it's an adaptation of a short Daniel Klaus comic. Um, it's directed by Terry Zweigoff, who made Crumb and Bad Santa. And while it's mostly about art school and the, the sort of BS of the art world, there is this like uh, uncomfortable romantic relationship at the center of it whose trajectory kind of reminds me of Gus and Mickey from Love. And here the would-be uh, lovers would be Jerome, played by Max Minghella, and Audrey, played by Sophia Miles. Jerome is an artist of some talent, but he's, you know, he's at this art school. He has a lot of trouble fitting in and finding success. And he winds up competing with another student for Audrey's affections. Meanwhile, there is this serial killer on the loose, killing people on campus. And without spoiling too much, Jerome gets, like, mixed up in the case. And obviously that has an effect on his relationship as well. So why do I love this movie so much when nobody else likes it? I think 
I was I was I was wondering about this. I was really trying to figure it out, and I think it maybe it has to do again getting back to love. I'm it's really the inspiration for my picks this time. It, it has a very peculiar and very particular comedy wavelength. It is very sour, very cynical, very dark. It is just merciless in sort of mocking. Uh, the 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 art world and the the like the people in it uh, the the phonies uh, and the, the the particular types of people that sort of you you meet in that world and you you think as you're watching it I suppose if you're you, again getting back to the sort of tropes of this kind of movie the formulas you think that surely at some point the bleak worldview is going to soften a little bit there's going to be a happy ending. The misunderstandings will be resolved. Good will triumph. Love will prevail. And, you know, not uh, not to spoil anything, but kind of like love, that's not exactly what happens. And in this case, this was a movie that I liked right off the bat. It didn't take me a while to come around on this one. Maybe having seen Bad Santa and Crumb and knowing Terry Zweigoff's work, I was just better prepared for it. But... I don't or maybe maybe I don't know maybe the fact that it's not 5 hours long and broken into 10 episodes helps too. I don't know. But I I love this movie and uh it was another one that when I was thinking of movies that do what love does but maybe do it a little bit better or more satisfyingly to my tastes. This was another one I thought of. So that is Art School Confidential that is uh streaming now on Tubi TV. Your love for that movie is impressive. It is. I'm the say. only one. <laughs> I've never met another person who loves that movie. So my last pick is is a movie that I think would also fall under the slightly sour category. And it is, incidentally, on Tubi TV as well. We really are standing for Tubi TV this time around. Um, it's available for rent as well. And this movie is Young Adult, the 2011 film directed by Jason Reitman from a screenplay written by Diablo Cody. I think my favorite film from both of them yeah, I think it's certainly my favorite Jason Wright film. And yeah, my favorite Diablo Cody as well. Starring Charlize Theron as uh, Mavis Gary, a divorced, alcoholic, depressive author of a series of YA novels uh, that are about to be canceled. And uh, in this kind of low point, she she decides to ha- uh, head home to her the small town of Minnesota to see her high school sweetheart, who is played by Patrick Wilson, uh, who is married, has a daughter, is by all accounts extremely happy and settled, but who she decides anyway that she has always been destined to be with. And uh, I really like this movie, and I really like how the main character is written. And, you know, we talked about how Mickey from Love was a slightly different sort of character uh, in the world of cuddly, indie, quirky, you know, uh, and usually, like, slightly nicer characters in that realm but uh, what i really like about theron's character in this is that she is she is mean she is unstable like she seems to have a a mental illness you know that's that's not diagnosed the the movie gives you plenty of indications of that and she's she's also as i think the some of the characters the women that she went to high school with describe her as a psychotic prom queen bitch and she lives up to that uh, but she's also very sad, and the movie manages to treat her with empathy while never pulling back on her scary behavior as she, you know, basically sets out to break up this marriage 
and run off with the guy that she she's she hasn't been involved with since high school who she has decided is the secret to happiness and i think there's a bit of an echo of that in love and it's actually one of the qualities that i wish the show had explored a bit more before kind of really digging into it at the end which is this idea of of deciding that someone else like fixating on someone else as like your key to happiness you know inventing this fantasy life with them that in which your problems will be solved by having a romantic relationship with this person and i think in love like mickey's character keeps going back and forth between the reality of gus and then the idea she has that he is the nice guy with whom she will be happy and in young adults, you know, uh, Patrick Wilson's character is this is just totally like the small town, the handsomest guy in the small town. Right. Like the uh, he's a guy who's really happy with what he has. He's a guy who has set up a, a kind of like a cool life. And she has always been very ambitious and sure she was destined for better things and, and kind of is frozen as a, as a high school mean girl. In, in this, you know, fully grown woman's body. And uh, there's something very, there's something very teenage. Uh, I mean, there's a reason she writes YA novels. There's something very teenage about the life, this kind of escape that she imagines with, with this high school sweetheart. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that 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 idea is very like is very kind of provocatively and, and uh, engagingly realized in this in this uh, movie, uh, yeah. And it's it's a movie that I liked but didn't love the first time I saw it, and I've come around to like more on on repeated viewings. And it's it's all like Theron, you know, is is a very good actress, and she is such a good fit for this character because she is not. She is another actress who is not afraid of, of her character. Not feels no need to soften a character in order to, out of fear that she is not likable. I mean, this character is not that likable, but she is totally interesting. Uh, so that is Young Adult. It is on Tubi TV for free, and it's also available for rent. All right, let's do the segment whose name we can never remember or pronounce, where we talk about new movies that are not streaming, that are currently in theaters. Um, We have a film from last week that both of us have seen and will discuss, but it is Gods of Egypt, which I feel like um, will be a topic of conversation at this time next year when the Razzie Awards are announced. Uh, It's got to be the early frontrunner for at least some attention there. It is... uh, it's the new film from Alex Proyas, the director of The Crow and Dark City, and it uh, the movie got a lot of attention before anyone saw it because it is set, it's not quite set in ancient Egypt, it is set in a fantasy world that's sort of loosely inspired by ancient Egypt. The gods, you know, share the names of Egyptian gods, and there's pyramids, and, you know, the architecture, but... Really, it's it's the the world has no real connection to history. It's it's fantasy, like a uh, like a Lord of the Rings movie or something. There's gods; they live among the people. They're twelve feet tall, and they have magic powers. And 
uh, incredible gifts and abilities, and they can turn into robots with wings, and they kind of look like Transformers. And anyway, there was a lot of controversy because of the, the casting of this movie that was sort of set in Egypt with no Egyptian actors or no Middle Eastern actors or really any actors of, of color for the most part. A lot of, a lot of white actors. Mostly I, I learned, Allison, because of an Australian tax credit. They filmed the movie in Australia, and so they needed mostly Australian actors to get the tax credit they wanted because this movie cost $140 million to make. <laughs> Was it money well spent, do you think, Allison? Well, I won't say I didn't enjoy this movie. <laughs> it, is, it is like it is a go-for-broke commitment to this idea of like a sci-fi mythology kind of it there are times where it feels like the the old clash of the titans like it has a slightly shabby feel to it totally totally uh, it's it's like very purple in its language it's very self-serious but also goofy uh it's and then it, there are other times where it feels like it was inspired by the cover of some like long forgotten like pulp sci-fi paperback, you know, it has both of those elements to it. It's, it's really ridiculous. It's, uh, and, and I mean, the casting, I, the casting seems like the least of the problems when you, when you start digging into some of the things that happened in this movie. But I will say, Proyas kind of made it worse by having all of the extras be much more diverse than the main characters. You know, when you see like the people who are playing servants or are playing the crowd scenes, it's much more mixed, which then just makes it seem like a fantasy of like white gods ruling over like kind of mixed, diverse crowds, uh, like the worst of both choices that you could make in that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, this is a movie in which Jeffrey Rush plays Ra the Sun God uh, in his space boat fighting the worm, the toothy space worm of chaos. Yeah. It's a movie in which Gerard Butler plays Set, God of the Desert, and he like strides up through the crowd and he starts talking and he sounds like Gerard Butler just wandered into the movie. I'm unaware that it was a movie. It's got the Scottish accent. Doesn't like everyone else is doing kind of British-ish accents or English accents. He does not do try and match that. He does not even try and match their kind of cadence. He does his own thing. No, he it's did not care. Delightful. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a total mess. There are some things in it that are I thought were actually pretty visually impressive. I mean, the the some of the effects, like the action and things like that, are incredibly cheesy. But like the visuals, like Jeffrey Rush's space boat flying through outer space, dragging the sun behind it. Uh, like revolving around a flat earth because in this fantasy universe that's based on, I guess, Egyptian mythology, like the earth is flat. I thought that was kind of cool and fun and, and goofy and, and charming. Um, but then there is just a lot of, as you're, as you're describing it, just a lot of very questionable choices. It's a mess. It's a total mess. <laughs> but it's, it is the kind of mess that at least I kind of love. Um, that, as you said, it's going for broke and then it breaks. And there's to me, there's something charming about that uh, questionable racial politics notwithstanding. Um, and yeah, they, they the, the choices on that front are probably not justifiable. <laughs> they they apologized I mean, before anyone even saw the movie. So right, yeah. I mean, I like it seems like the least of this movie's problems. No, no, really. but really, 
anyone who wasn't in this movie was spared. You know what I mean? Like you're you're lucky to be not affiliated with this film. Yeah. So um, also, and we should give a shout out to Alex Prius ranting on Facebook about how right. all critics are they're sh- terrible, they're sheep. close-minded sheep people. Yes. <laughs> Wake up, people! Wake up, sheeple! I made a masterpiece. Yeah, I don't know why he hasn't dealt with the fact that the movie has done very poorly financially as well. Well, the um, critics sabotaged him, obviously. That was mm, their plan all along. Yeah. Um, I don't know what happened to Alex Prius, but not a great year for him right now. No. And I don't know if I would recommend someone paying full price in the theater, but if you're a person who enjoys weird, bad movies, you need to see this one at some point. You know what? It's like the perfect matinee. Yes. If you live someplace that still has matinees, and New York barely does at this point, it is like a turn up at like 11 a.m., watch this movie, sneak some food in. It'll be great. Yeah. I agree. All right, let's move on to uh, Behind the Eight Ball, where we wrap things up by giving you some new movies that are now streaming. We give you some recommendations that you guys, the SVU listeners, have sent in, and we give you one random film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists. Allison, uh, how about you want to go first this time? All right, I will go first. All right, well, let's start with three new releases. Okay, first up, new to Netflix is The Look of Silence, Joshua Oppenheimer's Doc companion piece uh, to 2012's The Act of Killing. They really feed into each other, but you can also watch The Look of Silence by itself, and it will be just as devastating and formally rigorous. Did not win the Oscar this past weekend. Still very, like, still a just outstanding documentary, and I think one that we will be talking about for years to come. So you can look, watch that on Netflix now, The Look of Silence. New to Tubi TV, a platform we've been weirdly mentioning all over the place in this episode, <laughs> is, is Haywire, the 2011 American action film, thriller, conspiracy film, uh, directed by Steven Soderbergh, starring mixed martial arts star turned actress Gina Carano as Mallory Kane a black ops agent who is targeted for assassination and sets off on a mission to figure out what happened by beating up a series of A-list leading men, including Michael Fassbender and Channing Tatum. It's a very good time. Uh, Gina Carano maybe still kind of figuring out her, her kind of herself as an actress, but as a stunt woman, she is fantastic. Uh, that is on Tubi TV. And finally, should, it should get a mention, new to Netflix is Fuller House, Netflix's very strange attempt at basically resurrecting slash uh, reincarnating the, the sitcom Full House, uh, bringing back most of the cast, some of them in regular roles and some of them just to appear every once in a while. It is a creepy bit of nostalgia overdose, but it is also just like so weird, especially the first episode is so weird. I would highly recommend checking it out just because it feels like the end point for nostalgia television, though I'm wow. sure something much weirder will come around soon. Wow. Weirder than uh, Gods of Egypt? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very okay. strange. It's almost like it's almost like a David Lynch thing accidentally. <laughs> All right. I got to watch this thing. All right. How about two listener recommendations? Uh, okay. We got one from Russ who recommends uh, Simben. This is the exclamation point on that. Simben. 
documentary about the father of African film, eye-opening and a must-see for anyone interested in cinema, he writes, i.e. all listeners, doesn't shy away from his controversies. And that is on Fandor and also, Russ points out, just appeared on iTunes in the U.S. Thank you for that recommendation, Russ. And our second recommendation is from Paul in Adelaide, who is on Twitter at Return of Smith. He writes, recently added to Netflix in the U.S. and also in Australia is the 2014 documentary Nine Muses of Star Empire. The film chronicles the creation and debut of a Korean all-girl pop group, the titular Nine Muses. Watching this, I was surprised that the record label allowed the release of this film. It depicts the life of these girls as a living hell. Teen girls are taken advantage of, yelled at, and there are plenty of blood, sweat, and tears, all in the name of bubblegum pop music. The most blood-boiling sequence occurs when the manager of the group gets the girls into a car accident, injuring them quite badly. Then in the next scene is yelling at them for not doing their choreography right, even though their arms are in slings and their legs are cut and bruised you will never look at k-pop the same way again wow this is going in my this is going on my my list right now paul thank you yeah Um, i i love the kind of uh like the ideas of the korean kind of pop music machine it's a real empire and they really manufacture you so um i can't wait to check that out thank you paul all right and how about one film chosen from your my list randomly by number you gave me number eight, which is Hellions, directed by Bruce McDonald, who is the director of Pontypool and the Tracy Fragments. Uh, here is the description. Dora, played by Chloe Rose, is a teenager who just wants to have fun and get high with her boyfriend on Halloween. She is stunned when her doctor tells her she is four weeks pregnant, something she says should not be possible. Distraught, she goes home. Uh, to wait for her boyfriend to pick her up for a Halloween party while her mother takes her younger brother to retreating. But before her boyfriend can pick her up, Dora is visited by strange children in strange costumes. Their presence is increasingly threatening, culminating with one carrying the decapitated head of Dora's boyfriend in a bag. And then soon she must fight them uh, for her unborn child who is growing at a strange supernatural pace. Lots going on there. <laughs> Lots going on. Uh, I mean, I like Pontypool. I think, you know, Bruce McDonald's got some interesting ideas. And that description is just, you know, teenager with supernatural pregnancy fighting off scary children on Halloween. I'm sold. I'm in. Uh, so that is Hellions, and it is on Netflix. Matt, are you ready? Yes. Okay, three new releases. All right, first up, the fascinating documentary Finding Vivian Mayer, which is now available on Netflix. This film is about a woman named Vivian Mayer who worked all her life as a a nanny, and when she died, she left behind this astonishing archive of beautiful photographs that she had taken and never shown anyone. And a collector bought her negatives and basically tried to piece together who she was and and why she took these photos and then never showed them to anyone. Um, I think... The one issue with the movie is that it's made by one of the people who found uh, the photos. And so, you know, he's never really questioning what he's doing with these photos, which I think you have to at least wonder about if such a secretive artist would have wanted, you know, these images out there in the world, wanted a documentary about her, all these sorts of things. But it's, it's such an interesting story that it is at least worth a look. That's Finding Vivian Mayer on Netflix. And next up, also on Netflix... 
the sequel to the classic martial arts film Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. This one is called Sword of Destiny, and it's directed by martial arts choreographer Yuan Wu Ping. Uh, Michelle Yeoh uh, returns uh, as her character from the first film. Donnie Yen is uh, her co-star in it. The movie hasn't gotten great reviews, and I'm a little baffled to learn that the movie was filmed in English. I'm not really sure why, but uh, I added this one to my my list myself, and I am curious to watch it because I am a fan of the first film. So that's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny on Netflix. And finally on Amazon Prime is Mr. Warmth, the Don Rickles Project, a very entertaining documentary about the immortal insult comic Don Rickles. The film charts his entire career. It has great clips of his work, and it is directed by John Landis, actually. Sadly, one of only two movies John Landis has made in the last decade. If you're interested at all in Don Rickles, it is worth a watch. That's Mr. Warmth on Amazon Prime. Okay, two listener recommendations. All right, our first is from Jason in Clearbrook, Virginia. Jason writes, hi, Allison and Matt. Great job on the podcast. Matt, congrats on new dadhood as well. I'd like to offer a recommendation for Series 1 of the BBC's The Detectorists on Netflix, which is apparently very popular, and yet I'd never heard of it. The show stars Mackenzie Crook, who most people probably know as the eyeball pirate guy from Pirates of the Caribbean, and Toby Jones, who most people probably know as the hydra-mad scientist guy from Captain America, as Andy and Lance, two working-class blokes trying to balance their personal relationships with their hobby of scouring the countryside with metal detectors. I know that it already sounds like a pulse-pounding thrill-a-minute ride, and I didn't even mention the part where they order fleece jackets for their metal-detecting club. Sorry, spoiler alert. Kidding aside, this is a great show. Low on stakes, but high on charm, and frequently gorgeous to look at. That is The Detectorists on Netflix, and that is a recommendation from Jason in Clearbrook, Virginia. Thank you, Jason. And we also have a recommendation here from Jonathan, who writes in, Mubi just started streaming the long-lost Dennis Hopper documentary, The American Dreamer. Saw it yesterday, and I was fascinated. And uh, Jonathan would love to know what we think of the film. I have never seen it. Uh, That's a movie I've wanted to see for a while, so... Thank you to Jonathan for that recommendation, The American Dreamer, and that is available now on Mubi. And one from your My List. You gave me number one. Number one. The, the, the number one thing I need to watch on Netflix right now is Catwoman. Halle, <laughs> yes, Halle Berry stars in this tremendous adaptation of the DC Comics uh, villain, heroine, I don't know, which she's sort of both in this movie, I guess, where, you know, she's wearing a all-leather outfit, she's got a mask with a kitty ears on it. She made this after she won her Oscar, so good luck, Brie Larson and Alicia Vikander, and be careful out there. Allison, <laughs> should we discuss our listeners' choice options for our next episode? Yeah, let's do that. We've we got have... Up. This is one Random of our most <laughs> this is one of our most eclectic selections, I think. I have a feeling I know what's gonna win. Yeah, yeah, probably. But well, let's go through all three of them. Our first one is a little film entitled Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters. Uh it will be streaming by the time people hear this on Amazon Prime. And this is of course the classic comedy. Uh, directed by Ivan Reitman, starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, the late, great Harold Ramis. 
uh, there. They're busting ghosts. It makes them feel good. There's a theme song. Allison, this was your suggestion. Why do you think it's time to revisit Ghostbusters? Well, I've heard they are doing a all-female Ghostbusters. What? I can you believe it? This is unacceptable. Women really? busting ghosts. What will, what will they do next? Demand the right to vote? This is outrageous. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, Ghostbusters is a film that many, many people enjoy. I'm sure the two of us included, but I haven't taken a look at it for a long time. And I think with it, with the the new, I don't know, is it a remake, a reboot? What is the proper term for it? I would uh, now, having not seen it and not knowing all the details, I would assume it's a reboot. It's not a remake because they're playing right. different characters, and I don't think that they're going to acknowledge the previous movies. I don't think, right. at least, I don't think like Peter Venkman is a character. So I'm going reboot. Okay, so the reboot coming out seems like a good time to take it on. And also, honestly, as we've been doing this podcast for a while, I feel like streaming sites' relationships with movie catalogs have changed. Part of the reason we've talked about 2B TV so much in this episode is that as Netflix and Amazon Prime and others, uh, Netflix in particular, is putting less effort into licensing films in, in favor of their original programming, uh, it becomes a bigger deal when one of these sites gets a title like Ghostbusters, which I don't think has been streaming in a long time. So, uh, you know, I think that that, that fact makes it, it worth a revisit. And I, I, I think, I don't know, lots of things for us to talk about there, including maybe just like how it's held up over the years. I'm sure we would have a good conversation. So that's option number one. Ghostbusters, which will be streaming on Amazon Prime. Allison, what's option two? Option two, exactly like Ghostbusters, it's Thebe. <laughs> Thebe, the, one of the foreign film nominees this year, did not win. Son of Saul won, but Thebe is a, a movie I've heard very good things about. It is available for rent on Amazon and possibly some other places. Uh, and it is about a young Bedouin boy, the title character, who has to survive in the desert um, during World War II in the wake of the Great Arab Revolts. And uh, it's described as a Bedouin Western, which pretty much sold me on it right yeah. there. And uh, yeah, I've heard great things about this. And also it just seems like it's uh, about a part of a world and a type of story uh, you know, and uh, traveling through that part of the world with a type of story, a Western style story, uh, I'm so intrigued. Uh, but so that is option number two. And Matt, what's our third option? Our third option is a film that I'm sure will someday have a legacy as great as Ghostbusters. It is Mordecai. Yes, Mordecai, the 2015 film. Uh, directed by David Kep, that is based, I guess, on a series of novels about a character named Mordecai who's, uh, I don't know how to describe him. I've seen this movie and I don't even know how to describe him. He's a, like an art dealer, con man, thief type character, played by Johnny Depp with a outrageous mustache and accent. And it's a very strange film. I, I don't want to spoil the review if we're going to talk about it, but... Um, you know, of course, was you know got terrible reviews. It was a huge bomb, but I don't know if it's quite that simple. And I do think there are things we could talk about about Mordecai, uh, not just about the movie, but about Johnny Depp, who's had a very interesting career. 
especially in the last couple of years as he's made these very strange choices and not always uh, successful or even um, interesting movies. But somebody who I'm fascinated by, and I'm, I'm sure we could have a very interesting conversation about him and about the film Mordecai, which is available right now to stream both on Amazon Prime and on Hulu. All right. Well, which of those varied movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You make the call. You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, March 7th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account at FilmSpottingSVU and on our Facebook page, which is Facebook slash FilmSpottingSVU. Give us a like there if you haven't already. We need your love. And uh, you'll have all of that week to watch the film that wins and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will come out around Tuesday, March 15th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The FilmSpotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com, and we will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review you pick. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer, and follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening.